here at Prairie View, and it is my pleasure to be able to um, be up here and preaching the Word of God this morning. Um, we just wrapped up in First Peter last week, and we're moving into a new series next week, starting next week, called Unsung Heroes, which are just overlooked parts of the Bible, overlooked people, overlooked stories in the Bible, and so this is uh, what is considered an open week, and I've been given the opportunity to preach and to preach what I want to preach, and I thought that it was fitting coming out of elect exiles and going into unsung heroes to preach from Matthew 16, uh, 1 through 18 this morning. So if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, starting in verse 1, and uh, before we get going with that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that we get to gather together and worship you um, and see you at work, not in pillars of fire, not in burning bushes, but in faces and people and personalities and in mothers and fathers and and sons and daughters. Um, God, I, I ask that this morning as I come here, having prepared this week, that my preaching, that our listening would be banking on, counting on the promise you've made, the guarantee that you've made, that your word, when it goes out, it does not return empty-handed, Lord, so that this morning as I preach, as we listen, that it's not about me, that it's not about us as listeners, God, that you would use me, that... Um, it's not to empty myself to be nobody, God, but that as an instrument, whether that's a piano or a violin or a drum kit, I, I'm not sure which of those I'd call myself, but God, that you would speak through me and play me to sing your song and that we would, again, bank on that promise um, that your word does not go out and return empty handed. And that's by your Holy Spirit through the word that you were in the word or in the world. Um, Be with us during this time that we would honor you and praise you and grow to love and worship you more deeply. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So as I was saying, we are looking at the book of Matthew, chapter 16 this morning. And I I think the last time I was up here, um, several a couple months ago, uh, I guess I've made it a practice of I, I enjoy going through... The entire, well, when it's possible, the entire text before me. And so we're going to do that again this morning. So starting in verse one, and we're going to read through verse 18. This, this right now will not be on the screen behind me. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you have your phone, open your app and and flip to Matthew 16. So starting in verse one, it says, in the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He, Jesus answered them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? 
or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This morning, as we look at these 18 verses, I want to point out how what we've picked, what I've picked this morning for us is broken up into three acts, three scenes, three different unfolding stories within a play here in chapter 16 in verses one through four we read of jesus's or one of jesus's many encounters with the pharisees and the sadducees now the pharisees and sadducees are a prime example of the maxim an enemy of my enemy is my friend these two groups were at odds with one another within judaism but viewed jesus as an even greater threat to their parties an even greater enemy than one and another on the one hand we have the sadducees the elites of first century israel they were wealthy they were powerful and they were exclusive uh, which led to them being largely unpopular and by the time of jesus they were more concerned with politics than religion and on the other hand we have the, the Pharisees. They were more likely to be middle-class types and as such related far better with the common man and, and woman. And the Sadducees are, and they were much more popular than the Sadducees. And, and also, unlike the Sadducees, they were deeply concerned with religious practice and, and were considered experts on the teaching of the Old Testament. And in these first four verses, there's a great irony here. There's a great irony shaping up that we miss by just dropping into chapter 16. And, and just for the sake of time, that's necessary for us to do. But this morning, what, what's happening before in the end of chapter 15 is that Jesus has given a sign. So the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, Jesus, give us a sign. Show us a sign. Prove to us who you are. And what we don't realize, like I said, just jump, jumping into verse or chapter 16 this morning, is that literally in chapter 15 was a sign. It was a miracle. Jesus fed five or 4,000 men, not including their women and children, their wives and kids, with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Literally a miracle, literally a sign, yet they demand more signs. So Jesus rebukes them and says, you are wise you, yet you don't understand what's going on right in front of you. You are wise. You don't understand what I'm doing. In verses 2 and 3, he says, He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He said, Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailor's warning. You understand that, but you don't understand me. So that's the end of scene one here in chapter 16. Moving along to verses 5 through 12, following this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, 
Jesus teaches his disciples. So it says when the disciples reach the other side, so we get, we're given the impression that they weren't around during this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were no doubt familiar, acquainted with these two parties, but they were not there with Jesus in this encounter in verses one through four. But when they do cross over, they do catch back up with Jesus. His concern for them is that they would avoid the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this morning, that is not my point. Much could be made of this. Much has been made of this. You're probably familiar with Phariseeism and being Pharisaical. Maybe not Sadduceical. I'm not even sure what that would be. But, but, and there are parallels there, right? The Bible tells us there is nothing new under the sun. And so if we worked not even that hard, we could trace a line and see how Pharisees within American culture act and how Sadducees within American culture act. But that's not my concern this morning. In these verses, we can see something else, something maybe a little deeper, a little below the surface, but it's that the disciples are just as dense and ignorant, if not more so than the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus warns them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the disciples can't understand why Jesus is talking about bread. Now, granted, the last time they saw Jesus, they had bread on their minds, so They they were thinking about this earthly thing, but they couldn't see past this earthly sign to the heavenly one. So Jesus, seeing their confusion, makes it clear to them that he's not talking about bread. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that's how Act 2 ends. Now, starting in verse 13, we see Jesus, who so commonly spoke in parables, hard sayings, things that were hard to understand, even now after years and years and years of people working through these things and, and trying to understand them, that we still come to them and wrestle with them. But here, starting in verse 13 through verse 18, Jesus offers one of his clearest statements. So starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here in these verses, Jesus affirms the great Christian claim, the great truth of Christianity. Here, Jesus says that he is God the Son. Here, Jesus says that he has come as a rescuing, redeeming king, the promised Christ. And who is it that says this first? Who makes this confession that Jesus affirms? It's none other than Simon Peter. What do we know about Simon Peter? Well, a lot. And we can go to the Bible in a lot of places to know things about Simon Peter. But what's the last thing that we could guess Simon Peter was doing before this happens? Simon Peter was among the disciples struggling with Jesus' teaching about leaven and bread and Pharisees and Sadducees. Nothing in the New Testament suggests that Peter was an exceptionally brilliant man. Yet out of his heart... In his mind, in his mouth, that we receive these wonderful words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's pull this together. Verse 18 is still hanging there, but let's pull this together, these first 17 verses 
together. First, this first act, we see that wisdom and education are no guarantee of understanding Christ. We see this in the Pharisees and Sadducees. They have a privileged position within society. They were educated, yet they couldn't understand the signs right in front of them. Second, we see that Jesus' disciples, his own disciples, who were themselves mostly uneducated outside of the fact that they followed Christ, they were largely uneducated, blue-collar, fishermen, rough-around-the-edges types of people. And they also struggled to understand Jesus. So the educated, uneducated, the elite, and the common both struggled to understand what was happening. That's why when we come to this third scene, this third part of this drama unfolding in chapter 16, I think we are very familiar with this if we've been within the church for any length of time. I think we come to this knowing what's going to happen, seeing it and ready to just cruise right along. But we should be surprised. We should be surprised by Peter's reaction, by Peter's confession. How is it possible that Peter can get confused about bread Yet grasp this much greater, much larger, and bigger and more important truth. It's possible because God does it. Peter doesn't use the powers of his mind. He doesn't use his brain and logic and reason to come to this conclusion. No. Jesus says right there, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's Simon's son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven, the Christian message is a distinctly otherworldly message. I've read and when I come up and I'm given the opportunity to preach here or on a, on a Sunday night for youth group, that preachers are, are called to bring the atmosphere of heaven to the pulpit and speak from the borders of another world. And this verse here gives insight into why that is. It's because the Christian message, the good news of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, is not revealed by flesh and blood, but by God, the father who is in heaven. It is a foreign language to us. It is by nature a supernatural message that the transcendent God who exists outside of space and time and all of creation would take on flesh to live and dwell among us. It would be unimaginable if it had not happened. That is the great Christian claim. This is the great truth of Christianity that God became man and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And proclaiming this news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was foundational to the spread of Christianity and the and the building of the church. We see this throughout all of the New Testament. The first Christian sermon given by Peter at Pentecost ends on this high note in Acts 2.36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if you're confused, understand that the title Lord, while not always a reference to God, is often used to talk about God as a, as a substitute for the name of God, um, out of fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. So we see both Lord and Christ. We find the same sen- sentiment at the end of the book of Jude. In Jude 24 and 25, there's, there's only one chapter, so 24 and 25. It's chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. But it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. 
Amen. And then we find it also in the book of Romans from the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans opens up with these four verses. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You probably are not surprised by this. The most basic goal, what has popularly become referred to as mission, is to make the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, the forgiveness of sins known throughout the whole world. And this is exactly what we should expect from Peter, the rest of the, of the apostles, and the early church. Because in verse 18, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, this morning, there, this is a fairly important church or, uh, verse in the history of the church, and uh, to not say anything of it would, um, would be foolish of me. Um, so I, I'll say that this is an important verse. It's a controversial verse. Um, it's been much debated. There's a play on words here in verse 18 that we easily miss in the English. That the name Peter means rock. So in the original language, we'd read this verse and it would say, you are rock and on this rock, I will build my church. And, and like I said, this, this play on words has been much debated between Protestants and Catholics, that the Roman Catholic Church holds that this passage is the basis for the papacy, for the Pope. They'd argue that here in this moment, Jesus is instituting Peter as the first Pope of the Christian church and Protestants protest this right protestants and roman catholics disagree on a handful of things and the legitimacy of the pope is among them now there are two common interpretations protestant interpretations of this verse and again without getting into too much detail i might have spent too much time trying to figure this out and getting into this but i'll, I'll quickly present them both the first is that the two words are not the same that the word peter is petros while the word rock is petra there's a difference. And, and so these two words are meant to indicate size, that Petros is a small stone uh, and Petra is like a large cliff, a mountainside that's immovable. So Petros here means people, small people who come together in the hands of Christ to build the church. While Petra refers to Peter's confession that that was the rock that the church would be built on. The second of these two interpretations is that the two words are essentially the same. That when Christ says, on this rock, I'll build my church, he is referring to Peter, not Peter's confession. But this isn't an argument for papacy. It's not an argument that we now need a pope that, oh, my eyes have been opened, what are we doing? It's simply using Peter as representative of the apostles. P Peter is functioning as the mouthpiece for them and their representative. He is what we might say is the first among equals. So the foundation isn't Peter himself, but the apostles represented here by Peter. And both of these interpretations are supported by scripture better than the Roman Catholic teaching. As we've already seen, the confession itself that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is spread all throughout the New Testament. And then that the apostles, not just Peter, were the rock, but they, the apostles were the foundation of the church, is supported in Scripture as well. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in Revelation 21, the wonderfully tricky book of Revelation, verse... Or verse 
or chapter 21, verse 14, it says in the wall of the city, city there being New Jerusalem, representing the people of God, the church had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So when we read verse 18, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This verse is not a proof text of the Roman Catholic doctrine regarding the Pope. It's not granting a unique position to Peter to be passed down to the present day. The church was built upon the apostles, specifically their confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And which aspect of this is in view here, whether it's the confession or the 12 men, the apostles themselves, is not the most important point of this text. So let's not get hung up there anymore this morning. One more time, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what is the point? So on this rock, I will build my church. This is the point that we've labored to here this morning, that Christ will build his church. This is the point that I've labored this week to make clear that Christ will build his church through the apostles and their confession. Jesus has built, is building, and will build his church unto completion. So what are we to learn from this verse? First, the church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church is his. And I know I've done a fair amount of words this morning, but one more is um, to make this point clear. If you're not familiar, the word for church is better understood as assembly or congregation. It is literally the called out ones. And just by nature of the society we live in, we might assume that the church, because of the way we see it working out day to day, week to week, is It's just the way we organize as Christians, that there are Christians, and then when they come together under a certain roof with certain leadership, that that then is a church. So with that, we have Baptist churches and Lutheran churches and Presbyterian churches, non-denominational churches, and those are all churches based on how they're organized. But the church most truly are the called out ones. The church is the collective people of God. And so seen in this light, it only makes sense that Christians... Those who make up the church belong to Jesus. Christians are the assembly. They are the congregation. They are the called out, singled out people of Jesus Christ. Now second, Jesus himself is building and will build his people, the church. And nothing, not death, not all the powers of hell will stop him. Did you notice that the enemy is given with the image of gates? In verse 18, right? It's given with gates, not armies, not swords, but gates. And what are gates? They're a defense mechanism. They're meant to keep people from coming in and going out. Yet Christ has no problem bursting through the gates of hell and delivering his people from this fortress of sin and death. I want to ask you this morning, do you love the church? My question in light of what we've read, these three scenes that we've seen unfold is, do you love the church? I'm not asking if you serve the church. I'm not asking if you give your time to the church. You you likely give your time to your job. You likely serve at your job. But does that mean you love your job? No, not necessarily. 
In our culture, and especially in our Christian culture, we've placed a huge emphasis on love as sacrifice. To love someone is to lay your life down for them. And do not hear me wrong this morning. That is a good emphasis. That is a biblical emphasis. That is a gospel emphasis. The Bible tells us greater love has no man than this. He would lay down his life for his friends. But when we do that, we can easily miss another side of this gospel, of this good news. Now, I've heard a story from another preacher told about a poor farmer who, upon growing the largest carrot he had ever seen, presented it to his king. He told the king that it was the greatest carrot he'd ever grown, and he wanted to give it to the king as a token of his love and respect. And as the farmer turns to leave, the king stops him and gives him a new, bigger plot of land to farm. And the farmer is surprised. He's shocked. He's so happy and heads home rejoicing. Now, a nobleman in the court overheard this, and and he thought to himself, how much greater his reward would be if he gave the king something better than a carrot. So the next day, the nobleman presents a horse to the king, the greatest horse he has ever bred as a token of his love and respect. However, the king doesn't reward the nobleman handsomely. In fact, he doesn't reward him at all. Instead, he accepts the horse and dismisses the man. And the king said to the stunned nobleman, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Now, I'm fortunate to be here at Prairie View. I'm fortunate to be serving with people who have so plainly demonstrated their love and their faithfulness to this church through many ups and downs. And so this morning, this is not an indictment. This is not an indictment. This is not me standing here condemning us as a church. We have a great church where we have people who love the church But I I want it to be a reminder or a caution that there is more to love than just service. Because the nobleman was serving the king with the horse. But it wasn't out of love for the king, but for himself. I don't know your hearts, and I won't pretend to judge them. But I know my own heart. I know the temptation to serve the church in order to be seen as the type of person who serves the church. And that's as self-serving, as loveless, as the nobleman who gave that horse. So my question is not whether you serve the church. It's do you love the church? Do you delight in the church? Is it your joy to be amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you look forward to the Sunday morning gathering or do you dread it? Do you feel about Sunday morning how you feel about Mondays? Or are you eager to gather with the people that Jesus Christ himself is building? See, the people of God, the church, are a visible sign of God's presence, his power, and his purposes here on earth. Do you love it? So Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is found in Ephesians 5 and is commonly, if not always, read at Christian weddings. But the point isn't that the way Jesus loves his church reflects how husbands love their wives. The point is that the deep, profound way that husbands are supposed to love their wives is a glimpse into the great love that Christ has for his people, the church. The greatest husband can never love his wife the way that Christ loves his church. The greatest husband can only reach for that, can only try to imitate Christ's love for the church, but can never achieve it. And that's not a, a, a condemnation of man. That's the, the nature of who we are, the fact that we are sinners and Christ is God. Now, an example of this is, would you insult a man's wife to his face? And be careful 
how and when you talk about the church. Because the church is not fundamentally the building, the organization, the budget, but the very people of God being built up as Christ's bride. And if you're here this morning and believe that you do, in fact, love the church, and I'm confident that many of us in this room do love the church, I want to encourage you to examine yourself that you are not giving yourself the horse, so to speak. That the delight in the church, that you delight in the church because you delight in the owner and the architect of the church. That your love for the church flows from your love for the church's master, Jesus Christ. And perhaps... You're here this morning under no illusions that you love the church. You, you, you are not convinced whatsoever that you love the church. You might, in fact, think you don't need to love the church. You have complaints with the church that it's hurt you, that it hasn't served you in the way you had hoped, that it's full of hypocrites. That the church talks about love and justice a whole lot, but never walks those things out. And you, or you've been looking for a community and fellowship, but have struggled to find it. All of these things may be true. And this is no excuse for myself or any of the rest of the leadership here or at any church anywhere to just be a mess and to just say, well, we're, we're being built. We're under construction. No big deal. This is not an excuse after last week when we heard the very high standards that the Bible sets for people in leadership within the church. This is not an I'm going to mess up, so get over it sermon. It's a realization that the church of Jesus Christ is still being built. It's still a work in progress. It's a construction site, and it can be a little dangerous. And believe it or not, there may be an exposed nail or two or an unsanded rough patch here or there with you and me. You are not excused from the messiness of the people of God. Christ's desire is that you will be built up and that you would build others up within the bride of Christ. There will be bumps and bruises and injuries and hurts and scuffs and scrapes and dirt and paint and sacrifice. Yet this is just what we've been told in Matthew, that Jesus Christ is building his church. It's not the educated elites of the world or the common blue collar workers who are building the church. It is Christ. It is not our programs. It's not all the efforts in the world. Those are good things. And we are called to duty and to serve. But ultimately, it is Christ who will build his church. And our hope, our confident assurance is that though the people of God are a work in progress right now, that we're a little messy right now, it will one day be completed. If you love Jesus Christ, you will love the church, not out of compulsion, but because it's precisely through the church that we come to know Christ more and more. You will love the church when you realize how great and good the owner and architect of the church is. Your love will blossom when you realize that the kingdom of God is slowly but surely breaking in through Christ building up of the church. When we see repentance and forgiveness, when we see lives restored, when we see people faithfully praying for one another, and we see those prayers answered, or when we see peace that passes all understanding, when our prayers go unanswered, when we see men and women of all ages gathered together to sing God's praises, we know for sure that the architect and owner of the church, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is still working. Would you bow your heads with me and pray this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, how you've spoken to us, how you've offered it to us to 
equip us, to grow us, to live in this world as exiles, as strangers in a strange place, but together as a family being built up into the household of God. God, I pray that as we look at the church and we see all of its faults and we might see all these things wrong with it and all these shortcomings and, oh, this could be better and that could be better, God, that we would still love the church because we look at it and we see your fingerprints all over it, God, that we are broken people. We are just clay in your hands, that you are still working, that you are still putting together. And when we look at the church, we don't fundamentally see a broken place. We see a place of hope. A place looking to a future where you will come back as king and and restore everything and sin and death will be no more. And, And that's why we love the church because it is the place where we see that, where we should see that most clearly. I thank you for your word. I pray that in everything we've done this far and we'll do in, in the time we have together and in our fellowship meal later on after the service, that you would be honored and glorified. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.